Chung Hiệp Su, Ha Ya Yang Ming, and this is Anagot, the podcast of Cambodia's future. We are here in the studio to talk about it, the stream of money from abroad that has shaped Cambodian development since the early 1990s. We will start with some history of the aid environment here and then move on to what comes after as Cambodia is increasingly pushed to stand on its own. But before we go too far, I want to introduce my co-host, Andrew. Amen, great to be here today. Uh, and to be sitting here with you and our guest, today we have on Mr. Irso Paul, Associate Professor of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College in the United States. Uh, so Paul is also a longtime political observer of Cambodian affairs and governance, and in 2013 published Aid Dependence in Cambodia, How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy. Very relevant to our discussion today. Uh, so Paul, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Pleasure to be on, finally and to speak with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on, for sure. All the way from, what, California there, Occidental? Yes, Los Angeles, California, where there's a lot of excitement at the moment with uh, the U.S. presidential election having taken place yesterday and not knowing still at this time, 48 hours later, after polls have closed, whether, you know, Trump or Biden has won precisely. Yeah, as a governance guy, I'm sure you have a lot to be anxious about or to be, be aware of as this election is coming in. Indeed. I've been long on the record with my view of President Trump four years ago, where I criticized the candidate before his election. And so I've been very critical of his style of governance and um, the lack of accountability that he has shown uh, in the last four years, I think, has proven to be the case. We need to return to the more regular norms of governance where democracy and accountability are present. Well said. So beyond the election, if we can think of anything but these days, uh, what have you been working on lately? Right now, I've got a book uh, manuscript with a university press publisher uh, entitled Viral Sovereignty and the Political Economy of Diseases, How Countries Handle Outbreaks. And it's, it's really the idea of how countries, countries like Cambodia, countries like the United States, countries like Mexico, handle outbreaks and diseases, which... I started working on a decade ago, and um, now, of course, it seems like uh, every broken clock is right twice a day. It seems that I have waited long enough until COVID-19 hit to be relevant once again in terms of having that topic be very hot at the moment. Definitely very hot. Too hot (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) We wanted to start just by setting a little history for kind of where we see this discussion going today. And the basic story that we were reading about seems pretty straightforward. From the early 1990s on, up until 2018, Cambodia has received more than $20 billion in foreign aid from sources like the World Bank, the IMF, and nations like Japan and the United States. Some of that was to rebuild the economy after years of civil war, and then before that, the genocide, or address other needs in health and welfare. And other funds, as we know, were to build good governance here, to foster a more democratic and more open society. I think First, we wanted maybe to define some terms within aid and to put it to you to see what you think. Uh, We we often talk about donors for aid, right? Like people giving money, but that's not really the case, is it? We have these donor countries tend to expect something when they give this money. There are some strings attached. Uh, What can you tell us about this? I mean, how do we how do we talk about aid as a as a form of giving? Right. Uh, And what you're referring to is is known as tied aid. It's still concessional in nature. The definition of aid, formally official development assistance, is that it has to have a concessional component that is 
classically defined to have a certain interest rate below a certain interest rate. It has to be subsidized and it cannot be for commercial purposes, which is why the kind of financial assistance or money that is now seen coming from China does not qualify as technically speaking foreign aid. So the classic ODA that you're referring to is processed by the Development Assistance Committee of the OECD, for example, in terms of how it's counted. So there's multilateral aid, the kind of aid that the World Bank and the IMF and and the UN provides. And then there's bilateral aid. And when you're talking about expecting something in return, it's typically the bilateral aid. So it's the aid that's given from one country to another country, from one people to another people. And frequently the expectation, even with American foreign aid, is that you should fly U.S. flag carriers, that you should hire U.S. personnel, that in the case of Japan, that you should hire Japanese consultants. When they work for, say, JICA, for example, the Japan International Corporation Agency, when donors like the U.S. Agency for International Development, the administrator, the head of AUSAID, talk about things like, oh, 84 cents of every dollar returns to the U.S. from USAID. Um, that, while it sounds great to Congress when he said this to in a congressional hearing, is actually, I think, despicable when you hear that for every dollar U.S. people give to a foreign country, 84 cents returns to the United States. That's not, I think, something that one should necessarily be proud of. It's an indication of how screwed up really the aid system is. Yeah, that's interesting. So, and we'll, we'll kind of get into the motivations of donor countries in a little bit here. I was hoping to talk a little bit about the effects of some of the things you're talking about, right? Because we have, obviously, the, the theme of your book is about this dependence on money from abroad. Uh, we wanted to look specifically first at, at governance, right? Which is a pretty vital topic here. In one passage from your book, you write that modern Cambodia is a thugocracy, I believe, and that the international community led by the UN is its enabler. Can you tell us about that? So I think we've recognized for a long time that one of the best features of Cambodia in terms of its rankings has been its ability to outperform neighboring countries, indeed the world frequently, in terms of corruption. It's simply always a champion of this. And that has been documented in Transparency International's uh, Corruption Perception Index, as well as other rankings throughout the years. And it's consistently, so it's not like, oh, you pick out one year and, oh, it's terrible. It's number 164 or something out of 180 countries. Mm-hmm. It is consistently in that bottom performing. But, you know, these are the kinds of, I think, truths that we have to face. The reality is, that the more resources slush around Cambodia, and especially now with Chinese assistance and Chinese investment and loans and so on, the more tempting it becomes as the proportion of resources increases. If you're dealing with some kind of land uh, reclamation project near Riem that is arguably, I've read, $16 billion resort, luxury resort out there, that's almost three quarters of Cambodia's GDP for a resort those resources can be massive for any individual that provides the concrete for it, that does the construction. And so it's just too tempting, I think, for countries and the authorities. So when people talk about development and you ask a, a farmer, what is development? You, you would think that development would be, oh, 
you have the infrastructure or you build a school or you have healthcare. Well, what if the farmer says that development is they build a road and steal my land? That's because the authorities or somebody close to the authorities knows where the road is going to be built and how the land around that road is now very valuable and therefore worth stealing. Because before there was any road there, it wasn't worth stealing. Now it's worth stealing because there's going to be a road there. So there are all these factors that I think intertwine in creating the, the perverse incentives that are associated with aid and not just traditional aid, but just when there's a lot of money coming from outside that isn't really being monitored in the same way that when the country giving the money or lending the money seems to also practice corruption itself, as in China. It's even easier to turn a blind eye, right? So is that the central driver then of this thesis that dependence on aid breeds bad government? I mean, is it, is it just the, the lack of accountability of this money kind of sloshing around all of a sudden? So the logic that I made in the book was that aid substitutes for taxation, which then means that the accountability that comes from democracy, which typically is, if you were in the United States and ever visited Washington, D.C., the motto there is taxation without representation. The view then would be no taxation means no representation. If you don't get people to pay taxes, then they're not going to ask you, the government, to be accountable because they're ostensibly not paying. Of course, they're paying in other ways. They're paying in bribe taxes. They're paying in informal taxes. They're paying in corruption money. But that's not counted in the books. We're talking here about formal taxation and the revenues that come from that. Something I'm wondering, it's clear that from the way we're setting all this up, that the core of the argument is that this aid doesn't work, or at least it's not working in the ways the donor countries maybe intended to. We wanted to ask a little bit later, a little more specifically about what they intend, but just looking at this sort of broken system, why isn't it working? You know, when you live in, in Phnom Penh, you see all these young development-minded people from all over the world running around. A lot of them are very smart. They're very well-meaning. What's not working here? I want to be mindful to the fact that it isn't that all aid does not work and I'm labeling everything as dysfunctional. I think one has to look at different types of aid, different scenarios in which aid works better or works less well. In the book, I argued, for example, that for a country that is steeped in agriculture, it seems very odd that aid isn't targeted towards agriculture as much, right? So nowadays, we look at COVID-19 and how it's impacting the economy, and oh my goodness, garment workers don't have any garments to work on anymore. So let's go back to the countryside. Back in the countryside, there's no irrigation and nothing that can help increase productivity in agriculture. Eight years ago, when I uh, published the book, I felt very much that agriculture was an area that needed more investment. And in fact, the obsession seemed to be, at least uh, for the Phnom Penh folks, that um, you know you needed to have taller buildings. Just taller buildings will create development. And there's actually an index for that, a tall building index that seems to suggest that maybe if you think that way, it'll happen. But you know, it's we're, we're not talking about a country that is on the cusp of becoming industrial. It's really still a country that has lots of agriculture that has had for a long time a lot of its income from agriculture. And to simply ignore agriculture is, I think, a dangerous thing. So I was simply saying that, that aid should be focused on areas of need that the authorities should identify and not simply whatever the fashion of 
development aid that year seems to be. So every year it changes. One year it's the youth, another year it's governance, and it keeps shifting all the time versus the experience of countries like Ethiopia, for example, where they come up with their vision of where they want to be 10, 20 years from now. And, and then they tell the donors, you know, either you do this or if you don't do this, we don't want your money. Okay. Like you get onto our plan or we're not going to just follow whatever you do. And oftentimes in Cambodia, what I saw was more of a tendency to do whatever the donors wanted. You know, you want to do this project. Great. If you have the resources, that's, we'll do that because there'll be benefits from that for us. So there's a passive versus active governance at play here. Yeah, ownership of the actual projects that aid is going into. Right. And too often it was sort of a, a an inability to direct the development. And, and frankly, it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of initiative, a lot of vision. And too often it's just easier to say, okay, whatever you want, if you want to do this and you have the money for it, I'll do it. But then when the money stops, I won't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I come up with the question when talking about how Cambodian follows the interests of the donors. And I want to ask you that what should we do? I mean, what must Cambodia do to not follow every interest that donors give? But we have the voices, example that you raised about Ethiopia. How can we do that? Right. I think it, it requires that critical ingredient of ownership, which frankly, for a long time, when you're dealing with a situation of political instability, with a high discount rate, which means you're valuing the future less in the present. And so you kind of just want to take whatever's on the table now, as opposed to forego, save, invest, so that in the future, that those resources can be even more than what they are today, it leads to the unfortunate outcome that we've seen, which is that there isn't as much of that vision. There isn't uh, a willingness to to take risks and to say, you know, if you're not going to follow our vision of things, you just shouldn't, we're not going to be part of that. Um, so oftentimes it's believing, for example, that you might not be in power next year. If you're not in power next year, then maybe you want to do whatever is going to work this year. And maybe it's more valuable to grab those resources when they're available. Um, and that's, that's, I think, a real danger. And one would hope, of course, that as the current regime feels more comfortable over time, that it will develop its own vision of what needs to happen for Cambodia. And I would look for that pattern. If it doesn't happen, then I would be worried. Wait a minute. You're now no longer at all at risk of losing power. You don't have an opposition anymore in terms of having dissolved it. So what are you afraid of? Shouldn't you now be thinking more like Lee Kuan Yew was of Singapore circa 1960, a kind of vision of a place where you've got essentially it's your responsibility now it's your game you need to make something work out of it and not blame somebody else for your own failures in other words so dissolving the opposition as a step toward development well if one were to argue that it had been an obstacle before in terms of somehow our inability to secure a permanent rule was preventing us from being able to make the investments required or making the commitments because we're afraid that the next election we might lose, that would be a reason to think that perhaps there could be more of this kind of foresight and, and ownership. But I haven't seen it yet. And frankly, it has been now a few years since that happened, right? The dissolution of the opposition. And therefore, I'm not convinced that's, that's what's happening. There still seems to be 
uh, a kind of obsession over immediate gratification in the form of, for example, yet more luxury watches and more flights on super luxury jets and so on, which seems to me to be just uh, conspicuous consumption and not at all investment. When we, we talk about aid, it's not only about Cambodia receiving grants or loans or money from foreign institutions or foreign countries, but it also connects to civil society, which also plays an important role in helping Cambodia to develop, especially uh, human rights, democracy, and gender equality, and etc. But we have seen the trend that now the funds or the grants are being faded away. It means like step by step. What is the future of civil society organization in Cambodia if the grants or the funds will be taken away like step by step? Well, I think that it's a bad sign, right? Civil society, I think, is the conscience of the country. It is the backbone of society. And the fact that the resources that are critical for civil society's work to function are dwindling, that there's a lack of support for that area means that there's really, it's sad. There really needs to be, in fact, more resources in that area. And I would say that's one area where the foreign aid that has taken place in Cambodia, I would say, has helped to improve things. That The fact that you have more voices in society, the fact that you have, that you could see more diverse media or the LGBTQ community having uh, the ability to, to speak up and feeling safe are thanks to civil society providing the cover necessary for these actions, for this, for this environment to flourish. And when that isn't happening, I'm afraid that you get laws like skirts need to be of a certain length, not too revealing clothes, things that are increasingly seemingly uh, controlling of cultural values that I think have really very little place to, to be controlled by governments and should instead be controlled by morals and uplifting morals instead and not legislated in that way, which I think makes Cambodia, frankly, a country that increasingly looks less and less tolerant of values that differ from what is considered the patriarchy, unfortunately, rearing its, its head once again. The aid that I criticize is not the kind of aid that goes to, to civil society. It's the kind of aid that, that is squandered in corruption activities. I don't think civil society is engaged. I mean, there, I'm sure there is corruption in civil society in terms of the aid that it receives, some corruption, but it's by no means anywhere near as close as the grand corruption that happens in the Belt and Road Initiative and infrastructure projects, irrigation projects of hundreds of millions of dollars from China, for which there is observably no activity other than a ditch that's been dug and goes on for miles and miles and doesn't seem to do anything for irrigation in Cambodia, which we're now discovering with COVID-19 is in fact one of the main areas that Cambodia needs help on. Agriculture needs irrigation. And now after hundreds of millions of dollars, there seems to be no development there. But The money was spent. So where did the money go, right? Anyhow, I don't want to get too far into this. Yeah, I think there's an interesting question somewhere in here about sovereignty in aid, right? Because the government here is very intensely focused on sovereignty, or at least what it believes to be sovereignty, what it, what these sort of fence posts that I think are in the minds of, of certain government figures about what sovereignty is or what it entails It's always interesting to me how the path of development has largely been set by outside powers who happen to have money. Even, you know, looking at civil society, if you want to take it there, like the fact that 
the civil society of this country is largely dependent on foreigners either supplying money or some other type of aid, whether that be technical support or something else. What do you think the connection is between this very globalized Cambodia, this very outward-looking and outward-needing Cambodia, and actually maintaining some kind of sovereignty? Because even stuff like the skirt law, it feels like a lot has already been given up here. There have been many concessions made to outside countries. And like something has to be Cambodian, right? They got to have power over something. Women in their skirts, you know, like... The sword they'll fall on. Or the, the, I mean, I, I think it's fascinating because you're absolutely right. Sovereignty is this recurring theme in the dialogue between Cambodia and the international community, if you want to call it that. But it's also a kind of, you know, it's invoked at convenient times, I think frequently full of hypocrisy, where it's going to be the sovereignty of Cambodia to, you know, not have to kowtow to the West when it comes to human rights or to listen to, um, you know, conditions imposed about democracy or that it would be in the case of an internet gateway for Cambodia, that it would be kind of cyber sovereignty, right? That Cambodia should control the internet that comes in and out of Cambodia, except that, of course, it never seems to be about sovereignty in the end. It always seems to be about control, surveillance, about somehow keeping the patriarchy on top when it comes to that skirt law. It's not really anything particularly I think worthy as in we need to stand up for Cambodia because Cambodia is being trampled upon. No, why aren't we talking about sovereignty when it comes to bases in Cambodia that have Chinese seeming connections or luxury resorts that seem to have airfields that are very long? We don't talk about these things because apparently the authorities don't think it infringes upon Cambodia's sovereignty to do these things, even though it's obviously the presence of foreign forces on Cambodia is contrary to Cambodia's constitution. One should be thinking very carefully about sovereignty in that sense, because it is unconstitutional. But, you know, a lot of things, of course, I keep saying this in, in my interactions with, with the media, a lot of things that are completely not concordant with Cambodia's constitution appear to happen all the time, right? So that it's not as if Education should be free. Well, lots of people have to pay for education that's, you know, uh, kindergarten through 12. Uh, so so nobody's saying, you know, this is unacceptable. We need to do something about the corruption that happens in education. Why are children paying to be educated at this level? In other contexts, one should be standing up, I think, for the sovereignty of Cambodia. But right now, it isn't seemingly very important in that sense. It, it seems to be on the fringes of culture and and, and certainly, uh, you know, when it comes to rhetoric that involves foreigners bringing color revolution to Cambodia or doing things that the authorities fear might translate into regime change, which could simply mean trying to promote Cambodia's democracy. Well, if you don't think of democracy in the same way and you think that having a different government through democracy is somehow regime change or is color revolution, then of course, we're not going to agree about these things. But I get you. I think it's fascinating. I think it's a dissertation there to be studied. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what sovereignty means exactly and how that meaning changes depending on who's conceptualizing it. When we talk about sovereignty, I mean, it kind of gets me thinking. I, one of the themes of this conversation so far has been aid is different. There's no blanket like this is aid referring to everything. We can segment it. We can talk about it more nuanced than, than we might. Are thinking about China's presence in Cambodia, and I'm thinking specifically about the coastline, whether or not there's a base going in, because the Cambodian government certainly protests quite a lot when you, when you mention that there's a Chinese base happening. 
you know, whether or not there is, I don't know. However, the fact that 20% of Cambodia's coastline is already leased to China, this already seems like some kind of infringement on sovereignty. Most countries aren't leasing a fifth of their coast to another country. That doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense when you look at like broader strokes of development or national interest. And so my follow-up here is obviously going to be tinged by who we're talking about. But when we're looking at this aid, when we're looking at money going from other countries into Cambodia, what's in it for the giver? Because it sounds like it's not always clear what the end result is. Why are other countries throwing this money into Cambodia if it's so unclear? Yeah, no, I, I look, I don't think there's a free lunch out there. I, and I don't think anybody's just decided to underwrite Cambodia out of the kindness of their heart, right? It's, it's always going to be that fifth of the coastline in exchange for X amount of money, uh, least whether 99 years, whether 30 years, whether... 50 years or whatever arrangement one has. And, and, and what's in it really is, seems to be certainly getting the authorities in Phnom Penh to agree to support certain countries' positions internationally, whether it be you know, on the South China Sea, whether it be on the Uyghurs, for example, and there's no concentration camps happening in China or nothing to see there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it's not just Cambodia. And Cambodia is not standing by itself saying there's nothing happening in China with respect to the Uyghurs. It's, it's 40 plus other countries signing the same letter uh, with respect to Hong Kong. It's Cambodia piping up and saying, we stand with with Beijing and its actions on what's happening in Hong Kong, we support the security law and whatever else Beijing wants in Hong Kong. Or in the case of COVID-19, it's, it's flying off to Beijing to meet with Xi Jinping at the uh, beginning of the outbreak and, and, and shaking hands. And then Xi Jinping saying, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And, and so it's, it's just this kind of willingness to support at any cost your friends, which of course is odd because you know, um, and I hate to invoke Henry Kissinger in the context of Cambodia, but he did have one, <laughs> one quote where I think it made a lot of sense, which was, there are no permanent friends or enemies, uh, only permanent interests. And Cambodia should always be looking at its permanent interests. But yeah, I think, you know, this issue of sovereignty keeps recurring, I agree. And in, in the sense that, you know, a country is willing to make itself a little more landlocked in that a fifth of your coastline is now the property of China means that you're giving up something, um, and and whether it's it's a you know a Chinese base or whether it's giving passports to Chinese military personnel, in other words, deputizing them as Cambodians, and that gets around the whole problem with the constitution because if they're Cambodians, then they're not actually Chinese, and then it makes it okay somehow. But do you think they're going to fight for Cambodia? These soldiers, they're going to fight for China, right? So it's it's very odd. But I, I call it a new, a new colonialism. It's this idea that instead of the empire coming and taking over the colony, it's the colony inviting the empire and saying, hey, here's some passports for you. Welcome. You're now Cambodians. And we're not going to complain about this because you're paying billions and billions of, of dollars in, in investment and in bribes and whatever it is we need. So we're going to turn a blind eye to these things. That's the kind of sovereignty I think that's being sold and that's being squandered and that I think is truly damaging for Cambodia's independence, neutrality, and ability to function in the international community. Definitely. Yeah, a focus on China is definitely top of the page right now these days, but they're not alone in this, right? I mean, we also have, 
I guess like the the international institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, in Asia we have ADB, we have powers like the U.S. and Japan, kind of all of whom have their own interests in Cambodia. I mean, when we talk about these international institutions, right, like World Bank, uh, they've overseen a lot of projects here. They've had their own influential measures over the years. What do we think the agenda is for groups like this? Yeah, it's hard to say that they have an agenda involving military presence. Now, if you are a cynic, if you do believe in confessions of an economic hitman, then perhaps the idea there is that they're going to give you loans that you can't repay so that they can then take over your industries. And it's basically the narrative of the debt equity swap. Somehow the corporations from the developed countries will take over your assets, your natural assets, whether it's oil, whether it's uh, timber, whether it's, it's gold or diamonds or whatever, and enrich themselves because that's what they want. And it's because those loans that you never actually spent on developing your country because they were all you know, squandered or there was corruption involved, or maybe they never even designed it to be effective in that sense, that that would be the outcome. And, and Look, I'm not a Perkins true believer, but I think there's certainly an element of cynicism in aid or in loans, rather, that are given that everybody knows are not going to be repaid. And somehow the solution to debt trap is to essentially give more loans so that you can use the new loans to repay the old loans, right? So you recycle the debt in, in perpetuity that way. I don't think that the ADB and, and, and the World Bank are talking about the kinds of numbers that Cambodia's economy now at $26, $27 billion GDP per year is incapable of paying back. What we're talking about are resorts, luxury resorts involving numbers like $16 billion. That's a large number. And that is the kind of, of money that, why would there be a resort of $16 billion off in the middle of nowhere in the jungle, right? Or or even on the coast of Cambodia, there simply cannot be enough tourists to justify that kind of that kind of investment. So, what is the real purpose of that investment? So, that's that's the question that has to be posed. Yes, thank you very much. We would like to come back to the question: um, What comes after it? In June of this year, the Swedish government announced that they will stop funding the Cambodian government, while they will keep funding civil society organizations and especially those who are working to protect human rights and working on democracy, gender equality, etc. We would like to know, is the Swedish approach, is the new normal? You know, the new normal is a topic of 2020. <laughs> and um, how long uh, can Cambodia expect foreigners to give its money? Right. Frankly, I, I, I wish that the, the topic of 2020 was 2021 and how we can get away from everything that's been happening in 2020. But, but the reality, of course, is that when Sweden decides to do things like that, it's setting, I think, a courageous example in terms of reallocating, hopefully not reducing its overall envelope of aid, but to reallocate it towards civil society in an area that sorely needs that support. When the government talks about, or when we talk about less aid for the Cambodian government, the Cambodian government is getting, nowadays, is claiming to receive plenty of tax revenues um, and is able to generate revenues in, in other ways, whether it's tax or, or through other means, leasing of concessions and so on. And so I don't think it's starving for the resources, the financial resources that one used to think of as, oh my goodness, Cambodia is so poor, the authorities have no resources, they need to have everything given to them. No, it's a situation where 
they're quite capable, I think, of collecting the revenues, and they've shown that they're capable of doing that. Now, whether they actually allocate them in the most efficient way possible or choose the correct proportion is another story. But but uh, for Sweden um, to choose to do that, I think, is an example of how to go about and how to send the right signals. You're not actually saying, okay, we withdraw from Cambodia completely, so, so civil society also will suffer, but rather the, the government uh, aid that we used to give is now you know, no longer going to happen, and we're going to remain in terms of our support for civil society. So I think that new normal, as you frame it, is something that other donors should increasingly look at or look towards as a, as a model for how to think about countervailing and achieving the goals that they have for Cambodia. Now, we can debate whether those goals are legitimate, whether they should be there, or whether the normatively speaking, they're right for a country in the trajectory of Cambodia's development, whether democracy is right for the country or whatnot. But, but still, it's their money, right? And Cambodia could still say no if it didn't want to. But obviously, um, I think it's, it's something that's helpful for the people of Cambodia. And, and one should be grateful for the Swedish taxpayers who are paying for this. So coming back to the question of what comes next for Cambodia, you may have countries like Sweden who do tend to be more directly focused on some of these human rights and development projects and their aid. And then, as we've been mentioning throughout the episode, we have this new form. We can't really, I don't know if we would even call it aid, really, these these investments coming from countries like China. They're known as OOFs, uh, Other Official Flows. Uh, and it's it's a line in, you know, how you can define it, but Oof. it's literally outside of official development assistance because it, it doesn't qualify as that. And it's it's known as OOF, OOF. As we make that distinction, which is a vital distinction, clearly, to this whole conversation, is that the future of aid in Cambodia? Like like a decrease in this sort of more humanitarian or more more developmental stuff and a push into this, this OOF, this kind of nebulous investment schemes maybe coming from abroad? Well, so it wouldn't classically be defined as aid, right? So that's the whole reason why it's called OOF. It never qualified in, as a concessional package. So as a result, it, it's outside of that and it, it has to be somehow accounted for. Uh, why? Because it typically has a commercial component, right? So the commercial component disqualifies it as aid. There's an, an aspect of it that involves making money that is not part of what's considered aid. Um, and typically it's, you know, issued by banks in China that are lending this, let's say, and, and they expect a rate of return. They're not giving you this money for free. They're saying, hey, you need to, you need to, <laughs> we expect you to pay interest. This is the interest rate. Oftentimes the interest rate isn't nearly as competitive. I'll, I'll give you the example of Laos where, you know, this uh, railroad project connecting Southeast Asia, including Laos to Kunming, China, for example, originally they wanted a, a relatively high interest rate, China, and Laos was able to negotiate it down to 2%. So it, it, I think it was a, a, a very good deal. But of course, they wanted it to be in areas of the country that may not have made as much sense for the Chinese or whatnot. You know, they were looking at the financial viability of this. I, I would hope that, that for what's going to happen beyond aid in Cambodia is going to be uh, much more of certainly that kind of activity, right? The kinds of oofs, other official flows that come into Cambodia from China that are carried through by the Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's 
construction of, of railroads, high speed or otherwise, whether it is roads, new roads from the coast out to uh, the capital, uh, whether it is dams, for example, one, one would have to, to look at all of these things. And, and of course, the hope for, for any of this is that environmental impact assessments and social impact assessments are, are taking place that, that are not while the project is happening, which seems to be China's approach. Like, let's start the construction of this and study the impact while we're doing it. Uh, no, you should actually study the impact before you do it, because after all, uh, that's the whole idea. You would design a better project if you actually knew the impact beforehand. I understand social impact and environmental impact can take many years, and that's why a lot of regimes love China for how quickly it can move through things. But uh, that speed also has a price, which is that civil society would suffer and, um, and people would suffer. People are dispossessed of their land and relocated. And it's only afterwards that you then realize, oh, wow, you know, poor, poor communities that had to suffer as a result of this. They weren't um, compensated adequately or, you know, frankly, they didn't want to be compensated. They wanted to be, they wanted to remain where they were and they didn't want to be moved. I think that's dollar wise or money wise. The resources we're talking about are far, far greater in terms of oofs than in terms of traditional aid. And whether you're saying there's shrinkage going on in terms of the aid money itself or whether it's that it's just being dwarfed, frankly. If you're talking about a dollar of aid versus $10 of oofs, who's going to follow the money? They're going to go with whoever's giving them the $10 and not the $1, right? It's just obvious. So the question of what happens beyond aid or what lies beyond aid almost feels a little too, it, it almost feels irrelevant. You know what I mean? Because like, yes, maybe someone was giving you rice before, giving you money to buy rice before. Now they're giving you money to build a highway, but they expect something back on that highway because as you said, an oof is a commercial agreement. I mean, that that fundamental mechanism of of foreign money driving development in Cambodia is still there. So, I mean, really, unless you have that, maybe that key piece of local ownership of these projects, it doesn't really sound to me like there's a a difference here. Just the expectations from the the outside power maybe go up. Proportionally but. speaking, it's, it's far outstrips, right? So if you want to turbocharge your development, if you, if you think that that is what's going to accelerate your development as a leader and that it's going to produce the results that you want, whether it's actually for the people or for yourself or your family or for your party or whatnot, then you go with that. Look, uh, going back to the example of Laos, one, one of the consequences of Laos's inability to repay uh, some of its uh, Chinese loans was that China took over um, ELC, uh, no way. The electricity utility in Laos, yeah. Yeah, EDL or whatnot. So it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, you've got basically, uh, it would be the equivalent of Electricité du Cambodge being taken over by China in order to generate the revenues needed to repay. And now, of course, it was the result of Laos's you know, borrowing too much or core management, debt management skills or whatnot. But I would be leery of any situation where we keep hearing the same refrain in Cambodia, which is, oh, we have a lot more debt capacity, so we should just take on more debt. And shouldn't we care about what that borrowing is for so that it is efficient, allocated in a way that makes the most sense in terms of economic returns as opposed to you know, other kinds of returns? There's a higher reward potential when you go beyond aid into oof territory 
but there's a much higher risk threshold too, it sounds like. Right. So, I, yeah, I think the Perkins confessions of an economic hitman scenario are literally playing out in the case of Laos, right? So, so it isn't the boogeyman West that's taking over Electricité du Laos. It is literally China that's taking over uh, EDL. And in the case of Cambodia, I, I certainly hope it wouldn't be a scenario in which our inability to repay debts would then be dealt with through the acquisition of one of our assets, maybe Angkor Wat or, or an airport concession or, frankly, a port concession a la Hambantota Port in Sri Lanka, which was the classical debt equity swap for 99 years that China took over in the case of Sri Lanka. Uh, since we almost come to an end of our discussion and since our topic today is about it, so we would like to know the perspective or how you foresee the future of it in Cambodia uh, with the question is, what do you think is the best case scenario for Cambodia in regards to it? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I have my wish. It, certainly the wish that I have for the scenario of aid would be that for the aid that uh, continues to flow to Cambodia, that it be as effective as possible and allocated to areas that would improve accountability from the authorities, right? So, so if it's, you know, somehow supporting civil society, supporting freedom of expression, supporting the media, supporting all of the things I think that have made Cambodia a special place for 25 years, made it an open place, that would be, I think, very helpful for the country's future development. Uh, even though it's hard, of course, to do the return on investment for something like that. I mean, what's the return on investment for Martin Luther King uh, fighting for civil rights? Most investors would have said, absolutely not. We are not going to support this man. He's not going to be able to achieve civil rights, passage of a civil rights bill um, in the United States, but actually it takes risks and it takes a foresight and, and a willingness to invest in somebody like that or in a movement like that, a social movement like that. And, and in Cambodia, I think uh, continuing to support these causes is, is critical. Now, you know, if we're talking about traditional aid, at least the traditional aid that remains in Cambodia go to support projects that produce results, right, that have outcomes that actually benefit the poor, and it, it precisely the beneficiaries that the donors and the um, development agency intends would have their lives improved through this action. You, know, you can figure that out through impact evaluations after the project is done during the project and, and by studying, frankly, the effectiveness of other projects in Cambodia and elsewhere and around the world and, and, and what works, what doesn't and why, really. So that is something that in the future, as we continue on, on this journey, which I think is going to dwindle, right? So the proportion of aid as a percentage of Cambodia's GDP because of Cambodia's GDP growing rapidly over the last few years has declined. And so it's going to play, relatively speaking, a smaller and smaller role. But that's just normal. I mean, aid should not be increasing. It should be declining so that over time you become less and less dependent on aid and more and more independent. And I think that's going to happen. But before it ends completely, I would hope that it actually produces the intended results of development and hopefully a development that is equitable, that promotes human rights, that promotes freedom and democracy without justifying 
actions that that we have observed over the last few years in Cambodia. All right, here comes to an end of our podcast today, which we talk about aid in Cambodia. And last but not least, I would like to thank you very much, our guest speaker, um, Mr. Ieso Paul, Associate Professor of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College in the United States. And as always, thank you, Andrew, for being the great host. Thanks, Meng. Thanks, so Paul, for taking the time. And this is great. It's a great discussion. This is an Good Podcast brought to you by Southeast Asia Globe and Konrad Adinaw Siltung, Cambodia, produced by John Muller, our theme music by Fair Blue Selepas.